0: Chapter 16, Part 1 of Popular History of Ireland, Book 11 by Thomas Darcy Magee, Read for into the public domain. The Insurrection of 1798, the Wexford Insurrection. The most formidable insurrection, indeed the only really formidable one, broke out in the county of Wexford, a county in which it was stated there were not two hundred sworn United Irishmen and which Lord Edward Fitzgerald had altogether omitted from his official list of counties organized in the month of February. In that brief interval, the government policy of provocation had the desired effect, though the explosion was of a nature to startle those who occasioned it. Wexford, geographically, is a peculiar county, and its people are a peculiar people. The county fills up the southeastern corner of the island, with the sea southeast, the river Barrow to the west, and the woods and mountains of Carlow and Wicklow to the north. It is about forty miles long by twenty-four broad, the surface undulating and rising into numerous groups of detached hills, two or more of which are generally visible from each conspicuous summit. Almost in the midst flows the river Slaney, springing from a lofty Wicklow Peak, which sends down on its northern slope the better-known river Liffey. On the estuary of the Slaney, some seventy miles south of Dublin, stands the county town, the traveller journeying to which by the usual route then taken passed in succession through Arklow Gory, Ferns Enniscorthy and other places of less consequence though familiar enough in the fiery records of seventeen ninety eight northwestward the only road in those days from Carlow to Kilkenny crossed the Blackstairs at Scallagh Gap entering the county at Newtonbury the ancient Buncloudy. westward some twenty miles on the river Barrow stands New Ross often mentioned in this history, the road from which to the county-town passes through Scullabog and Talman, Taman, the former at the foot of Carrickburn Rock, the latter at the base of what is rather hyperbolically called the Mountain of Forth. South and west of the town, towards the estuary of Waterford, lie the baronies of Forth and Bargy, a great part of the population of which, even within our own time, spoke the language Chaucer and Spencer wrote, and retained many of the characteristics of their Saxon, Flemish, and Cambrian ancestors. Through this singular district lay the road towards Duncannon Fort, on Waterford Harbour, with branches running off to Banlow, Ballyhack, and Dunbrody. We shall therefore speak of all the localities we may have occasion to mention, as on or near one of the four main roads of the county, the Dublin, Carlow, Boss, and Waterford Roads." The population of this territory was variously estimated in 1798 at 150, 180, and 200,000. They were, generally speaking, a comfortable and contented peasantry, for the Wexford landlords were seldom absentees, and the farmers held under them by long leases and reasonable rents. There were in the country few great lords, but there was little poverty and no pauperism. In such a soil the secret societies were almost certain to fail, and if it had not been for the diabolical experiments of Lord Kingsborough's North Cork Militia, it is very probable that the orderly and thrifty population would have seen the eventful year we are describing pass over their homes without experiencing any of the terrible trials which accompanied it. But it was impossible for human nature to endure the provocations inflicted upon this patient and prosperous people. The pitch-cap and the triangle were resorted to on the slightest and most frivolous pretext. A sergeant of the North Cork Militia, says Mr. Hay, the county historian, nicknamed Tom the Devil, was most ingenious in devising new modes of torture. Moistened gunpowder was frequently rubbed into the hair, cut loose, and then set on fire. Some, while shearing for this purpose, had the tips of their ears snipped off, sometimes an entire ear, and often both ears were completely cut off, and many lost part of their noses during the preparation.' but strange to tell adds mr hay these atrocities were publicly practised without the least reserve in open day and no magistrate or officer ever interfered but shamefully connived at this extraordinary mode of quieting the people some of the miserable sufferers on these shocking occasions or some of their relations or friends actuated by a principle of retaliation if not of revenge cut short the hair of several persons whom they either considered as enemies or suspected of having pointed them out as objects for such desperate treatment this was done with a view that those active citizens should fall in for a little experience of the like discipline or to make the fashion of short hair so general that it might no longer be a mark of party distinction This was the origin of the nickname "croppy," by which, during the remainder of the insurrection, it was customary to designate all who were suspected or proved to be hostile to the government. Among the magistracy of the county were several persons who, whatever might have been their conduct in ordinary times, now showed themselves utterly unfit to be entrusted with those large discretionary powers which Parliament had recently conferred upon all justices of the peace one of these magistrates surrounded by his troops perambulated the county with an executioner armed with all the equipments of his office another carried away the lopped hands and fingers of his victims with which he stirred his punch in the carousals that followed every expedition at carnew midway between the dublin and carlow roads on the second day of the insurrection twenty-eight prisoners were brought out to be shot as targets in the public ball alley on the same day Enniscorthy witnessed its first execution for treason and the neighbourhood of Ballycheon was harried by Mr. Jacob, one of the magistrates whose method of preserving the peace of the county has been just referred to. The majority of the bench, either weakly or willingly, sanctioned these atrocities, but some others, among them a few of the first men in the county, did not hesitate to resist and to condemn them. Among these were Mr. Beauchamp, Baggenell, Harvey of Bargy Castle, Mr. Fitzgerald of New Park, and Mr. John Henry Colclow of Tintern Abbey, but all these gentlemen were arrested on saturday the twenty sixth of may the same day or more strictly speaking the eve of the day on which the wexford outbreak occurred on the day succeeding these arrests being Sunday, father john murphy parish priest of kilcormick the son of a small farmer of the neighbourhood educated in spain on coming to his little wayside chapel found it laid in ashes to his flock as they surrounded him in the open air he boldly preached that it would be much better for them to die in a fair field than to await the tortures inflicted by such magistrates as Archibald Jacob, Hunter Gowan, and Hotry White. He declared his readiness to share their fate, whatever it might be, and in response about two thousand of the country people gathered in a few hours upon Olard Hill, situated about half-way between Inniscorthy and the sea, and eleven miles north of Wexford, Here they were attacked on the afternoon of the same day by the North Cork Militia, Colonel Foote, the Chalmalier Yeoman Cavalry, Colonel Le Hunt, and the Wexford Cavalry. The rebels, strong in their position and more generally accustomed to the use of arms than persons in their condition in other parts of the country, made a brave and successful stand. Major Lambert, the Honourable Captain de Courcy, brother of Lord Kinsall, and some other officers, fell before the longshore guns of the Chaumalier Fowlers, of the North Cork detachment. Only the colonel, a sergeant, and two or three privates escaped. The cavalry, at the top of their speed, galloped back to the county town. The people were soon thoroughly aroused. Another popular priest of the diocese, Michael Murphy, on reaching Gory, finding his chapel also rifled, and the altar desecrated, turned his horse's head and joined the insurgents, who had gathered on Kilthomas Hill, near Carnew. Signal fires burned that night on all the eminences of the county, which seemed as if they had been designed for so many watch-towers. Horns resounded, horsemen galloped far and near. On the morrow of Sunday, all of Wexford arose, animated with the passions and purposes of civil war. On the 28th, Ferns, Camelin, and Enniscorthy were taken by the insurgents, The latter, after an action of four hours, in which a captain, two lieutenants, and eighty of the local yeomanry fell. The survivors fled to Wexford, which was as rapidly as possible placed in a state of defense. The old walls and gates were still in good repair, and three hundred North Cork, two hundred Donegal, and seven hundred local militia ought to have formed a strong garrison within such ramparts against a mere tumultuous peasantry. The yeomen, however, thought otherwise, and two or three of the imprisoned popular magistrates were sent to Enniscorthy to exhort and endeavour to disperse the insurgents. One of them only returned. The other, Mr. Fitzgerald, joined the rebels, who, continuing their march, were allowed to take possession of the county town without striking a blow. Mr. Bagginal Harby, the magistrate still in prison, they insisted on making their commander-in-chief a gentleman of considerable property, by no means destitute of courage, but in every other respect quite unequal to the task imposed upon him. After a trial of his generalship at the Battle of Ross, he was transferred to the more Pacific office of President of the Council, which continued to sit and direct operations from Wexford, with the cooperation of a subcommittee at Inniscorthy. Captain Matthew Keogh, a retired officer of the regular army, aged but active, was made governor of the town, in which a couple of hundred armed men were left as his guards. An attempt to relieve the place from Duncannon had utterly failed. General Fawcett, commanding that important fortress, set out on his march with this object in the 30th of May, his advanced guard of seventy Methian Yeomanry having in charge three howitzers, whose slower movements it was expected the main force would overtake long before reaching the neighborhood of danger. At Tagmon this force was joined by Captain Adams with his command, and thus reinforced they continued their march to Wexford. Within three miles of the town, the road wound round the base of the Three Rock Mountain. Evening fell as the Royalists approached this neighbourhood, where the victors of Ullart, Inniscorthy, and Wexford had just improvised a new camp. A sharp volley from the longshoremen's guns, and a furious onslaught of pikes threw the royal detachment into the utmost disorder three officers of the Methian cavalry, and nearly one hundred men were placed hors de combat, the three howitzers, eleven gunners, and several prisoners taken, making the third considerable success of the insurgents within a week. Wexford County now became the theatre of operations, on which all eyes were fixed. The populace gathered, as if by instinct, into three great encampments, on Vinegar Hill, above Inniscorthy, on Carrickburn, on the road leading to Ross, and on the hill of Corrigrua, seven miles from Gorey, The principal leaders of the first division were Fathers Kearns and Clinch, and Messrs. Fitzgerald, Doyle, and Redmond, of the second, Bagenal Harvey and Father Philip Roche, of the last, Anthony Perry of Inch, Esmond Kean, and the two fathers Murphy, Michael and John. The general plan of operations was that the third division should move by way of Arklow and Wicklow on the capital, the second to open communication with Carlo, Kilkenny, and Kildare by Newtonbury and Scalic Gap, while the first was to attack New Ross, and endeavor to hasten the rising in Munster. On the 1st of June, the advance of the Northern Division marching upon Gory, then occupied in force by General Loftus, were encountered four miles from the town, and driven back with the loss of about a hundred killed and wounded. On the 4th of June, Loftus, at the instance of Colonel Walpole, Aide-de-camp to the lord lieutenant who had lately joined him with considerable reinforcements resolved to beat up the rebel quarters at Coragrua it was to be a combined movement lord ancram posted with his militia and dragoons at the bridge of Scaramalsh where the poetic banna joins the slaney was to prevent the arrival of succours from vinegar hill captain mcmanus with a couple of companies of yeomanry stationed at another exposed point from which intelligence could be obtained and excommunicated while the general and colonel walpole marched to the attack by roads some distance apart which ran into one within two miles of corgrua camp the main body of the king's troops were committed to the lead of walpole who had also two six-pounders and a howitzer after an hour and a half's march he found the country changed its character near the village of clo where the road descending from the level arable land "'dipped suddenly into the narrow and winding pass of Tuberneering. "'The sides of the pass were lined with a bushy shrubbery, "'and the roadway at the bottom embanked with ditch and dyke. "'On came the confident Walpole, "'never dreaming that these silent thickets "'were soon to re-echo the cries of the onslaught. "'The fourth dragoon guards, the ancient Britons, "'under Sir Watkin Wynne, the Antrim militia under Colonel Cope, "'had all entered the defile before the ambuscade was discovered.' Then, at the first volley, Walpole fell, with several of those immediately about his person. Out from the shrubbery rushed the pikemen, clearing ditch and dyke at a bound. Dragoons and fencibles went down like the sward before the scythe of the mower. The three guns were captured, and turned on the flying survivors, the regimental flags taken, with all the other spoils pertaining to such a retreat. It was, in truth, an immense victory for a mob of peasants, marshalled by men who that day saw their first— or at most their second action. Before forty-eight hours they were masters of gory, and talked of nothing less than the capture of Dublin within another week or fortnight. From Vinegar Hill the concerted movement was made against Newtonbury. On the second of June, the rebels advancing by both banks of the Slaney, under cover of a six-pounder, the only gun they had with them. The detachment in command of the beautiful little town, half hidden in its leafy valley, was from six hundred to eight hundred strong, with a troop of dragoons and two battalion-guns, under command of Colonel Lestrange. These, after a sharp fusillade on both sides, were driven out, but the assailants, instead of following up the blow, dispersed for plunder or refreshment, were attacked in turn, and compelled to retreat, with a reported loss of four hundred killed. Three days later, however, a still more important action, and a yet more disastrous repulse from the selfsame cause, took place at New Ross, on the Barrow. The garrison of Ross, on the morning of the 5th of June, when General Harvey appeared before it, consisted of fourteen hundred men, Dublin, Meath, Donegal, and Clare Militia, Midlothian Fencibles, and English artillery. General Johnson, a veteran soldier, was in command, and the place, strong in its well-preserved old walls, had not heard a shot fired in anger since the time of Cromwell. Harvey was reported to have with him twenty thousand men, but if we allow for the exaggeration of numbers common to all such movements, we may perhaps deduct one-half, and still leave him at the head of a formidable force, ten thousand men, with three field-pieces. Mr. Furlong, a favourite officer, being sent forward to summon the town, was shot down by a sentinel, and the attack began. The main point of assault was the gate known as Three-Bullet Gate, and the hour, five o'clock of the lovely summer's morning, The obstinacy with which the town was contested may be judged from the fact that the fighting continued for nearly ten hours, with the interruption of an hour or two at noon. This was the fatal interruption for the rebels. They had at a heavy cost driven out the royalists, with the loss of a colonel, Lord Mountjoy, three captains, and above two hundred men killed, but of their friends and comrades treble the number had fallen. Still, the town, an object of the first importance, was theirs— when worn out with heat, fatigue, and fasting since sunrise, they indulged themselves in the luxury of a deep and unmeasured carouse. The fugitive garrison, finding themselves unpursued, halted to breathe on the Kilkenny bank of the river, were rallied by the veteran Johnson, and led back again across the bridge, taking the surprised revellers completely unprepared. A cry was raised that this was a fresh force from Waterford, the disorganized multitude endeavored to rally in turn, but before the leaders could collect their men, the town was once more in possession of the Bang's troops. The rebels in their turn, unpursued by their exhausted enemies, fell back upon their camping-ground of the night before, at Corbett Hill and Sleeve At the latter, Father Philip Roche, dissatisfied with Harvey's management, established a separate command, which he transferred to a layman of his own name, Edward Roche, with whom he continued to act and advise during the remainder of this memorable month end of chapter 16 part 1 read by sabella denton for more free audiobooks or to volunteer please visit librivox.org